Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, editor Gene Christie discusses the grandfather of science fiction, Bob Davis. The talk was recorded on August 15, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hugo Gernsback will always be remembered as the father of science fiction. He relentlessly sought out, purchased, published, and promoted fantastic fiction. He started amazing stories. He coined the term science fiction. But we're not here to talk about him tonight. We're celebrating the grandfather of science fiction, Robert Hobart Davis. Uh, Editor-in-chief of the Muncie magazines from 1904 to 1925. He kept the torch alive in the pulp magazines between 1904 and the 1910s when Gernsback became active. The number and popularity of major science fiction and fantasy authors that Davis is credited with discovering is legion. Without Davis and his willingness to spotlight the fantastic, we might never have heard of Abraham Merritt, Francis Stevens, Ray Cummings, Todd Robbins, George Allen England, J.U. Geisy, Murray Leinster, Charles B. Stilson, Austin Hall, Homer Eon Flint, and more. And many more that made themselves famous for writing less than fantastic fiction. Bob Davis was born on March 23, 1869 in Brownsville, Nebraska. He was the son of a New England minister who went west as a Christian missionary to the Indians. According to Davis, the Indian chief Sitting Bull was a member of his father's congregation. Davis attended public schools in Carson City, Nevada in his teens, this is the young Davis, uh, and became a typesetter at the local newspaper. And that's back when you had to look through the box for the E's. They didn't even have the linotype then. Uh, he moved to San Francisco and at age 19 got a job with the Chronicle there, one of the big dailies. He was setting the type for a baseball game story when the text was blown out the window. Uh, fortunately, Davis himself had seen the game, so he wrote a new story from memory while he was setting the type. The story was so vivid that he was immediately promoted to reporter. And eventually he worked as a reporter for all three of the daily newspapers in San Francisco, not at the same time, of course. New York City was the ultimate mecca for aspiring newspaper men in those days, so Davis traveled east in 1895 when he was 26. He found work as a feature writer for several of the daily papers, again, not all at the same time. One of his major scoops was an expose of war contractors who deliberately or who knowingly shipped putrid meat to American soldiers during the Spanish-American War. He married, married Madge Hutchinson in 1899, and there were no children that I've ever found any reference to, and not much reference to her. He seems to have just overshadowed everything. In early 1904, Frank Muncie was looking for an editor for his New York Daily News, and he was looking for somebody who was feature-oriented. Somebody who knew Davis from San Francisco recommended him, so Muncie asked Davis to come in for an interview. Again, according to Sam Moskowitz, uh, Davis met with Muncie on a Saturday, 
and asked twice the salary he was getting with the paper where he was working. When Muncie hesitated, Davis said he'd get back to him on Monday for an answer. As he was leaving the office, Davis ran into a friend who invited him to a private dinner that night. When he arrived, Davis found himself seated between the governor of New York and Frank Muncie. Following a scheduled speak on life in the American West, Davis got up and made an impromptu talk about that area where he spent his early life. When he sat down, the governor turned to Muncie and said, Frank, you might want to get to know this guy better. Muncie replied, it may interest you to know, Governor, Mr. Davis is starting work for me at 10 a.m. on Monday. <laughs> Davis later said, and this is a quote, and for 22 agreeable, prosperous, and satisfactory years, I remained in his employ. I had an understanding I was never to be bothered. I got along with him, close quote. Once, when he was asked how he could stand working for Muncie, Davis said, where else can I get $20,000 a year? Now, I looked it up not long ago on an inflation calculator. And do you know that $20,000 in 1913 dollars is the equivalent of $523,000 today? Uh, I sincerely believe that only one person in the Muncie organization was taking anywhere near that kind of money out of it, and that was Frank Muncie himself. So. I think Mr. Davis exaggerates on more than one thing. Before he came to work for Muncie, Davis had met a prolific short story writer named William Sidney Porter, better known then and forever as O. Henry. Some claim it was this experience that made Davis eager to discover talented new writers and help them become successful. After he went to work for Muncie in 1904, he signed O'Henry to a five-year contract, giving him first refusal for all of O'Henry's output at the unheard-of price of 10 cents a word. O'Henry's last story to appear before his death was one that Davis bought and published in Muncie's magazine for February 1910. Muncie made Davis the editor of the New York Daily News. Then, shortly afterward, he killed the paper. After he'd lost $750,000 on it over a period of two years, he moved Davis to Muncie's magazine as the fiction editor. The following year, when Muncie started the All Story Pulp, Davis was named editor-in-chief for all the Muncie magazines. And he hired Thomas Newell Metcalf, a reporter he had worked with at the New York World, as the managing editor for the new All Story, and then he would be over Metcalf. We'll hear about, more about Mr. Metcalf shortly. Davis is credited with launching and or supervising nine Muncie periodicals, except for Muncie's magazine and the Argosy, which were already being published. Davis would have participated in the creation of all the Muncie pulps. In late 1911, the company letterhead listed six titles, Muncie's Magazine, The Argosy, The All Story, The Scrapbook, Railroad Man's Magazine, and The Cavalier. By that time, the ocean and the live wire had already come and gone, making eight titles. And I assume that the ninth was the combined Argosy All Story Weekly, created in 1920. Although Davis's name was not always on the magazine, uh, he served as managing editor with direct control over the Cavalier, the Ocean, the Livewire, the Scrapbook, Railroad Man's Magazine, and All Story after early 1914. 
Science fiction stories did appear from time to time in the Muncie publications before Davis. As early as 1892, Muncie's carried a story called The Alien Thread, which was reprinted in Argosy four years later about an oppressive future society along the lines of 1984. In 1901, the Argosy printed Martin Bradley's Space Annihilator about a marvelous device that everybody in this room has, a cell phone. In 1902, a story about a man who made himself invisible to escape from prison. In 1903, a machine that could read a person's thoughts and another machine that could increase or decrease the effects of gravity. In retrospect, one of the most important science fiction stories of the early years was in the March 1904 issue of Argosy. A laboratory accident gives a man superhuman strength, sort of like Barry Allen would become the Flash in the 1950s. The important thing, it was the first story written by G.M. Barrows, who just wanted to see if it would sell. Having answered that question, Barrows stopped writing. It, temporary. It would be another 13 years before anything else Barrows appeared in print, and then it was under the name Francis Stevens. As a purely pecuniary aside, I collected these and other early science fiction from the Argosy in a book published by Tom Roberts' Black Dog Books. This and several of the George Allen England novels we'll be talking about in a minute are available from Amazon.com. End of commercial. Uh, but under Davis, fantastic fiction flourished. The first issue of All Story in January 1905 had two science fiction stories, one with an apparent time travel gimmick and another one about sleep being extracted from the atmosphere and sold in jars. The May issue reprinted a short science fiction novel by Garrett P. Service, who was a professional astronomer and wrote science fiction on the side. Uh, I can't go into all the little known science fiction that appeared because I have to make time for the more famous writers. And that brings us to what I delicately refer to as the Burroughs problem. In a 1933 article, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote of Tarzan of the Apes that, quote, Bob, Muncie, uh, Bob Davis of the Muncie Company liked the story, and it appeared in the October 1912 issue of All Story. While it may be true that Davis liked the story, I can't find any actual confirmation that he ever had anything to do directly with Burroughs and his dealings with the Muncie magazines until after Tarzan was already in print and had become a sensation. Not even for the, and, and not even for a significant period after that. Uh, it was All Stories managing editor, this is Burroughs of course, not Metcalf, but it was Metcalf who received the first part of a novel called Dejah Thoris, Martian Princess, that was mailed by Edgar Rice Burroughs on August 14, 1911, 108 years ago yesterday. Uh, along with the first of many letters that would go back and forth between the two men. Metcalf actually gave Burroughs the ending of the first Mars novel. You remember the oxygen factory's been disabled and Dejah Thoris is apparently dead and John Carter breaks through and starts it up and then he's back on Earth. Doesn't know what happened to his wife. Fortunately for history, as Sam Moskowitz noted in his long essay on the Muncie magazines, ERB, quote, had the pack rat instinct and kept virtually every letter he ever received and carbons of those he sent in perfect order. In the 1970s, the ERB fanzine Jasumian obtained and printed most of the early letters between Burroughs and Metcalf, 
starting with the editor's initial response to the manuscript dated August 24, 1911. Metcalf's, uh, let's see, in not a single one of these letters, some of which go on for a full page, is there any mention of Bob Davis? During their correspondence, Metcalf suggested that Burroughs try a novel in the Ivanhoe mode, and he, and he sent Metcalf the manuscript for The Outlaw of Torn less than two weeks after he serving his, receiving his check for the first Mars novel. Metcalf was very critical, and Burroughs actually rewrote the novel based on his suggestions, but he still wasn't able to satisfy the managing editor after four months of back and forth. Davis is not mentioned in the exchange regarding the outlaw of Torn, the gods of Mars, or in the letters that led to Metcalf's rejection of what we know today as the return of Tarzan. And this, of course, caused a rupture in the relationship between Burroughs and the Muncie Company that took years to completely heal. I just can't believe, given the absolute sensation that Tarzan and the two Mars novels caused, that Davis would have permitted Metcalf to handle Burroughs the way he did if he'd been aware of the situation. So Davis allowed Metcalf to reject the work of the company's brightest new star twice, apparently without clearing it with the editor-in-chief. So it's pretty obvious Davis was not a hands-on supervisor. And it makes it impossible to say that Davis was the discoverer of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Sam Moskowitz agreed. He wrote, burdened with the responsibility for three magazines, Davis left Burroughs entirely in the hands of Metcalf, who was in every sense Burroughs' real discoverer. Metcalf was fired in early 1914, undoubtedly for letting Street and Smith get the return of Tarzan. Uh, and Davis virtually admitted this in a 1916 letter to Burroughs. In June 1914, soon after Metcalf was gone and Davis had taken over as full editor, he wrote to ERB and offered to pay his travel expenses to come to New York to discuss five topics. The rehabilitation of Tarzan, lengthening of the girl from Harris's, the conclusion of the mucker, the, a sequel to perhaps the Mad King or at the Earth's core, and five, the pleasure of seeing you. In his reply, Burroughs declared, quote, I am sick of writing sequels, but I appear to be doomed. <laughs> the Mad King sequel seems less appalling than that to the eternal lover. However, I can write sequels to both if they are wanted, close quote. And of course they were, and they were written. Well, knowing how one felt, how he felt, you, can, you can't do anything but feel sorry for Burroughs having to live in sequel hell for the last 36 years of his life. And it makes you think, what could he have given us if he hadn't been chained to the literary equivalent of a Xerox machine for all those years? Among the sequels was Tarzan and the Ant-Man, published in 1924, which Davis helped to plot so he could get one more story out of Burroughs uh, you know, for the Argosy. While he may not have discovered Burroughs, there's no question that Bob Davis was instrumental in bringing many science fiction writers to the magazines. When the scrapbook was started in 1906, Davis hired Pearly Poor Sheehan as its managing editor. Sheehan's lost race novel, The Abyss of Wonders, would be published in All Story in 1915. And a few years later, during World War I, Sheehan would collaborate with Davis on a short play called Efficiency. 
where the Germans outfit a disabled soldier with artificial eyes, hands, and legs. A six million dollar man who probably cost a whole lot less back then. This has the distinction, according to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, of featuring the first example of what we know today as a cyborg. In 1907 and 1908, the scrapbook was issued in two parts, two standard-sized pulps, one containing articles and features, the second fiction. In 1908, the second section became The Cavalier, which used a Garrett P. Service story, The Second Deluge, in an early issue. It also ran a short science fiction novel by George Allen England that probably inspired F. Scott Fitzgerald's short story, The Strange Case of Benjamin Button, about a man who grows younger, eventually to babyhood. George Allen England eventually shared the limelight with Burroughs and H.G. Wells as the premier scientific romance writers in the teens. He'd been selling stories to Muncie since 1905. Uh, his first venture into science fiction was in the monthly story magazine, which would become Blue Book. So it's outside our purview, but his first long science fiction story was The House of Transmutation, a 1909 serial in the scrapbook about a scientist who turns a gorilla into a, gorilla into a man through a series of operations. The most outstanding and popular science fiction stories from the Cavalier were England's Darkness and Dawn trilogy, which is also just about the only thing he's remembered today for. It's a story of Beatrice Kendrick and Alan Stern who fall asleep in a New York office building in 1920 and wake up about a thousand years in the future. Uh, they soon find some other humans in a primitive condition, encounter some subhuman inhabitants, and eventually have to reestablish civilization. Bob Davis helped plot the first novel in the series, which appeared in the first four weekly issues in 1912, January 1912. And that was the month before Under the Moon of Mars uh, debuted an all story. It earned England $500 for 50,000 words. As with Tarzan, the readers demanded a sequel, and that became like pulling teeth for Davis. To get the next two novels, Davis had to hound England and make partial payments to him as he finished parts of the story. For Beyond the Great Oblivion, the second novel, he made a payment of $100 for the first part on August 12, 1912, $200 for the second piece on August 25th, $100 for the third part on September 12th, and a final payment of $600 on September the 25th. It appeared in the Cavalier starting in January 1913. In the Afterglow, the, the third novel, uh, England was apparently spurred on by publication of the second story. He delivered 16,000 words on February 25th, 1913, and the last part on April 9th. And it ran in the Cavalier in, in June of 1913. Davis would have to use the same piecemeal technique to get the empire in the air out of England. The story, the cover for that novel was particularly striking, and it's the only one I remember that ever used a red background. In 1970, Moscow called it, quote, a super science epic, 15 years ahead of its time, whose importance has since been ignored because it was never reprinted. Well, Black Dog Books and I remedied that problem in 2006, and that's available from Amazon, too. Just go to the website and look up Black Dog Books or my name. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft wrote that, quote, George Allen England, to my mind, ranks with Edgar Rice Burroughs and Albert Payson Terhune as one of the supreme literary artists of the House of Muncie. 
Mr. England's Darkness and Dawn trilogy is on a par with the Tarzan stories, and fortunate indeed is the magazine which can secure as contributors the authors of both. Bob Davis also made a practice of helping authors sell subsidiary rights, presumably getting some kind of a commission. Uh, he helped England sell the trilogy as a book, and that book was dedicated to Davis. Here's a quick survey of some of the notable science fiction and fantasy authors published in All Story under Davis. Rex Stout, certainly not remembered for his science fiction, had a lost race novel under the Andes cover featured in the February 1914 issue. J.U. Geisy, better known for the semi-dual mysteries, published several future war stories in 1913 and 1914, leading eventually to his Palos of the Dog Pack trilogy in 1918, an interplanetary adventure very much in the ERB tradition. Four of Sax Romer's Morris Claw stories appeared during March and April of 1915. Charles B. Stilson's Polaris of the Snow series started in the December 18, 1915 issue. Victor Rousseau, longtime pulp writer, turned out The Sea Demons starting in the January 1, 1916 issue. This is one of the first stories to explore a race with a hive mind mentality. Rousseau would also provide Draft of Eternity in 1918, projecting the hero a thousand years into the future, and The Fruit of the Lamp, which is so suspiciously like the TV show I Dream of Genies that it's impossible not to think somebody was borrowing something there. Austin Hall's first story, Almost Immortal, in, the, in July 1916, was the first of several very popular and memorable science fiction stories. Max Brand, also not known for fantasy and science fiction, published his first story in, the, in a January 1917 issue. He would go on to produce at least two science fiction slash fantasy tales. And Davis would help Brand sell his first novel to the movies. Frances Stevens' first story since 1904 was The Nightmare. She submitted it as The Unwilling Adventurer published in April 1917, about a man who goes to sleep on the Lusitania in the Atlantic Ocean and wakes up in the Pacific as a survivor of a shipwreck. She was paid $250 and, as Moskowit puts it, quote, encouraged to write more. She did. Ben Ames Williams' The Powder of Midas showed up in June 1917. In it, Germany finds a way to turn mercury into gold and plans to finance World War I with it. Todd Robbins' novel, The Terrible Three, was serialized starting in July 1917. It was filmed twice in 1925 and 1930, with Lon, Tw Lon Chaney Sr. starring in both versions. Robbins went on to produce quite a bit of creepy fiction for Davis, and is best remembered for a story called Spurs in Muncie's Magazine in 1923, better known uh, as the 1932 film Freaks. Philip M. Fisher, Jr., the most underrated author of science fiction and fantasy, debuted in 1917 with the demise of, of Professor Manreed, but he's better known for The Ship of Silent Men, Fungus Isle, and Beyond the Pole. Uh, the outstanding star of 1917 was probably Abraham Merritt, who through the dragon glass appeared in the November 24th issue and was followed in January by The People of the Pit. Merritt would also go on to provide many memorable novels for Davis, The Moon Pool and The Conquest of the Moon Pool, The Metal Monster, and The Ship of Ishtar. 
and others that are, I think most of them are still in print today. In March 1918, Homer E. Flint's The Planeteer was the first of several interplanetary adventures that would make him a favorite before his mysterious death in 1924. Ray Cummings, who had worked as an aide to Thomas Edison and shared the inventor's birthday, made his big breakthrough with the girl in The Golden Atom in March uh, 1919. He would be a science fiction ma mainstay for 40 years. Murray Leinster appeared in the February 22nd, 1919 issue with The Runaway Skyscraper, where a Manhattan office building is sent back in time to before America was discovered. In his next work, The Mad Planet, in June 1920, and its sequel, The Red Dust, made Leinster a giant in the genre, and he was respectfully referred to as the Dean of Science Fiction, and he wrote continually till he died in 1975. There's no doubt that Bob Davis was truly loved by many people, especially writers. In various forums, Davis claimed to read a million words a week as Muncie's editor and did keep in touch with an amazing number of authors through the mail. Mary Roberts Reinhardt wrote about, quote, those brilliant and sometimes incredibly funny letters, close quote, he sent her. Max Brand told Davis that his letters, quote, always make me happy. Because even if the news is disastrous, you put such a punch behind the words that you make a fellow glad to be a living human being. Close quote. Faith Baldwin wrote to a correspondent that she, quote, sold verse to the Muncie Pulps when I was 18. I wrote two shorts, the plots given to me by Bob Davis, and got about $15 for each of them. Close quote. Ben Ames Williams and Davis were continuous correspondents from 1930 to 1941. There are 250 Davis letters to Williams in the Colby College archives and 80 letters from Williams to Davis in the Davis papers in the New York Public Library. Davis also has archival material at Syracuse University, Princeton University, and the Nevada State Historical Society, and probably other places too. Besides the science fiction and fantasy authors we've mentioned, a partial list of people who acknowledge Bob Davis as an important factor in their success include Zane Gray, Edison Marshall, Octavus Roy Cohen, Fanny Hurst, Israel Zangwell, Dorothy Canfield Fisher, Frank L. Packard, Arthur Summers Roche, James Oliver Kerwood, Rex Beach, Louis Joseph Vance, and Charles Van Loan. More than 60 authors dedicated at least one of their books to Davis. One famous writer that Davis did pass on publishing probably has a bigger and more active fan base today than any of his uh, actual discoveries. In February 1924, H.P. Lovecraft recounted in a long letter to uh, J.C. Henneberger of Weird Tales, quote, your comment, Annette, the rats in the walls, delights me mightily. The more so because Robert H. Davis of the Muncie firm rejected it after some deliberation, as too horrible for his readers. <laughs> Another illustration of the essential insipidity and conventionality inculcated into our writing public by some of its leaders. This apparently really got under Lovecraft's skin because he wrote the same story to Frank Belknap Long ten months later and recounted his rejection by, quote, the celebrated Robert H. Davis to Clark Ashton Smith seven years after it happened. 
Davis's rejection of the rats and the walls is particularly interesting because 10 years earlier in 1913, Bob Davis was the man who bought and printed a short story that was considered, quote, too powerful and horrifying by several magazine editors. That was Irvin S. Cobb's Fish Head, which is described by Lovecraft as, quote, banefully effective in its portrayal of unnatural affinities between a hybrid idiot and the strange fish of an isolated lake. Sounds like that story made quite an impression on Lovecraft. In his long essay on supernatural fiction, Lovecraft cites another Cobb story that he later described as a model for his story, The Rats and the Walls. Cobb, incidentally, or maybe not, was a personal friend of Bob Davis, so that may be why he was willing to take the chance with Fishhead that he wouldn't risk with Lovecraft. Frank Muncie died at the end of 1925 and left Bob Davis a $10,000 bequest in his will. After stepping down from his magazine editorships the following year, Davis started writing a three times a week column called Bob Davis Recalls for the New York Sun, which was owned by the Muncie Corporation. So he stayed on the company payroll for the rest of his life. Uh, Davis traveled extensively all over the world and wrote in his column about his journeys, among other things. In 1926, he went to Italy where he interviewed Benito Mussolini, and uh, Davis was named an honorary member of the Associated Press after that interview was published. In the spring of 1930, Davis broke his ankle while traveling from Florida to New York and was unable to write his column for a while, although I can't really see why a leg injury should affect his ability to type. When she heard the news, Fanny Hurst, who famously called Davis, quote, the Christopher Columbus of American letters, sent telegrams to authors she knew requesting guest columns to fill the space. Reportedly, every person asked agreed, and 24 famous writers delivered columns to help Davis out, including Irvin Cobb, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Albert Payson Terhune, Ring Lardner, Booth Tarkington, H.L. Mencken, and others of similar stature. Davis published several books that were collections of his more interesting columns, and a few novels. He also wrote a biography of O. Henry and one of boxer Bob Fitzsimmons, A Guide to Hawaii, and books on many other topics. Davis was also, uh, okay, uh, you can't read it, but this is an autograph. No, no, go to, go to the next one. Yeah, at the bottom, the bottom autograph, the, the top autograph is from the guy who was head of the Muncie Empire after Muncie died. And then uh, at the bottom, New York, April 1935, it says, RX, take sparingly between meals, Bob Davis. This was the collection of his, uh, one of the collections of his columns. Uh, he wrote about, uh, let's see. Davis was also a noted photographer and made over 3,000 camera studies of famous and not so famous people. He referred to these as psychographs. Eventually, he collected 130 of them in a 1935 book called Man Makes His Own Mask. Bob Davis wrote the lyrics to at least two songs, one that was recorded in 1903 and another in 1919. He wrote three Broadway plays that were performed between 1910 and 1913. Eight films were made from his novels and shorter works between 1916 and 1932. He was known as a famed gourmet, an expert on prize fighting, and a noted fisherman. 
He also wrote a tribute to publishing called I Am the Printing Press that was reportedly printed in more than 1,600 newspapers, translated into most language, and paraphrased over 2,000 times in print. Bob Davis died on October 11, 1942, while, meeting, while visiting Montreal to gather material for his column. Among other praise, he was called, quote, the most lovable figure in American literature today, close quote, at a memorial luncheon attended by such literary notables as Sinclair Lewis and Theodore Dreiser, both of whom got their start in pulps. That's, that's Bob Davis. We have a good bit of time for questions. If anybody wants to ask any, I might even know some of the answers. Yes, sir. Gene, what was Davis's involvement with Argosy uh, once he got into the mid twenties? Uh, well, he he was he was pretty much the editor of Argosy after, after the merger that Matthew White, who had been editing it, uh, was gone and, and he was in charge of it. And spent a lot of his time trying to get new stuff from Burroughs and, and those kind of people. The competition had gotten real fierce by then. You know, Amazing Stories was on the, on the horizon and a lot of things were, you know, Blue Book and things like that were, were laughing, yapping at his heels, so he tried to stay ahead. Anybody? Is the book of his photographs available anywhere? Uh, it's, I, I found it online on eBay, but you know, they wanted a couple hundred dollars a piece, so I didn't get one to take any pictures out of. I couldn't find it in you know, any library close to me. But yeah, it, it, it sounds very interesting. I would like to have one, but I'm not willing to pay that much for it. What was the title of that book? Uh, Man Makes His Own Mask. Well, thank you. Uh, he's not paid. Uh, I'm not <laughs> uh, I, I hope so. Tom uh, has uh, not been able to get any books out lately, but I, I do hope we will be getting some more stuff out. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. Do you want to mention which projects you think are coming up? Uh, no, because I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got so many in the pipeline that I have no idea whether they're coming or, you know. Uh, you know, Tom's first love is his project, so you know mine are not always at the head of the line. Anybody else? Well, I guess we'll get along. Oh, okay. yeah, yes, Mr. Locke. Did, did he have any status as a science fiction editor during his lifetime, or is that something that came later? Well, yeah, I don't know. He, you know, he put all these things in there, obviously, but I, I, I really doubt that he. I mean, he was looked on as a science fiction editor because, after all, even though he published a lot of science fiction, the great majority of what was in the, all those magazines was not science fiction. So, it's that you know the science fiction cult, I guess, took him up eventually. And and Moskowitz's book uh, in 1970, Under the Moons of Mars, and that long essay he had on the Muncie magazines, probably did more for Davis's reputation as a science fiction editor than anything else. Yeah. 
Okay? Yeah, that's a great essay, and you can see I cribbed a lot of stuff from that, but also went to other places too. Okay, no other questions, and we'll have a long break, I guess, huh? Yeah, well. Thank you, oh. yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.